Thank you, Chuck. It's always good to be up here in the Yankee Carolina as a graduate of the Southern Carolina that was in existence a long time before the North, if you go back to Charleston and the heritage there. But it's a privilege to be back here at Southeastern Seminary and so thankful for Danny's leadership. You know, Danny's going to tell it like it is. It's so refreshing whenever we get to hear from him and the giftedness of JD, just man, what a privilege for all of us to hear the word from such a gifted preacher and teacher of the word. And uh, you know, we really blessed uh, in our particular convention. I don't know how many of you are a part of the Southern Baptist Convention because I know people are here from all over, but we really are gifted at this stage of our history with the finest entity heads really in my lifetime which is just awesome to see. Not only seminary presence, but the entity heads with Kevin and David and so many others. And to see leaders like JD that are the future leadership of our convention is really encouraging, which really sounds like a comment of an old guy. And I realize when you hear a guy has grandchildren and things like that, I, I, that says an image to you that maybe you're not at that stage of life, but it is a joy at this stage to see and thinking about the future of our convention and thinking about leadership there. Now, I want to talk to you today on a simple title of immigration and refugees, very simple. But as we talk about this, I just want to take you through a biblical overview of what God's word tells us about this important issue. And I want to urge you to write down a lot of text. We're going to cover a lot of text just for your future study to allow the Word of God to speak to you about what you as an individual and what hopefully your church, and I realize your pastor may not be here and your pastor is the main missions pastor in the church, but hopefully some insight for pastors that are viewing by live stream or insight you can share with your pastor from the Word of God about this very important topic. Now, if there's one word that we can use to describe especially the refugee situation, it is desperation. Now, there are over 65 million refugees in the world. It is a record number. It's never been that high. People are being displaced all over the world, and yet Syria is the front lines of that. Over 5 million refugees from Syria because of the war there. And we've all seen pictures of the war. This picture of this young child sitting in a chair overwhelmed with the trauma of war is something that has haunted us. But we also have seen picture after picture of refugees on the Mediterranean Sea, on the Aegean Sea. Europe has felt the brunt of this in trying to decide how to deal with this, and it has created great uncertainty in Europe. But what is so tragic is so many of these refugees, they don't make it. They either die in the Mediterranean Sea or they die on the shore there. And it's haunting. It's haunting. When my wife and I first went to minister to Syrian refugees in the fall of 2014, ISIS was really picking up incredible momentum. They were literally storming across Syria and Iraq. And we kind of chuckled. I don't remember our congregation ever praying for us more intensely. And then when you land there in Beirut, Lebanon, in order to go minister to Syrian refugees closer to the border, 
I didn't realize till we got there that the airport in Beirut is literally right in the heart of Hezbollah. It's owned by Hezbollah. They control that area. We were riding from the airport to where we were heading. I was seeing all these black flags and I was asking our guests, you know, what, what, what's that about? He said, well, you're in Hezbollah territory. And in being in that setting, you realize you're a stranger in a foreign land, but hoping that the love of Christ can be communicated to those folks while we're there. And what happens when you have that close hands-on upfront look and begin to be in the tents with the Syrian Muslim refugees, you realize it is a humanitarian disaster, absolute disaster. And yet in the midst of all of that, the God of the universe is orchestrating world events that is giving us an opportunity to really share the love of Christ and share the gospel of Christ with people like we have never heard before, have before. And our missionaries out there on the front lines are telling us that Muslims are more receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ than they have ever seen in their lifetime because they are sick and tired of the violence and the hatred of Islam. And they're looking for something more. And yet how ironic at this time that the United States only takes in one half of 1% of these refugees. And our president, President Trump, has been really shrinking the door of entry from the very beginning all the way back to the campaign. He's really just keeping his word about what he was seeking to do in regards to this issue. And the American public is living often in great fear and even responding to those concerns. Why? Out of fear. And what is so troubling to so many of us in the body of Christ is that this fear is permeating the church of Jesus Christ. And that fear is usually a stronger motivation than faith of trusting Christ in carrying out his great commission and loving those that God is bringing to our doorstep. And so in the fall of 2015, when word came out that President Obama was going to allow 50,000 Syrian refugees in the United States, it created a firestorm of opposition politically. And because we had been engaged in ministry to Syrian refugees, both on the ground there on the, on the borders of Lebanon and Jordan, but also wanting to help knowing they would now come in, we contacted World Relief about welcoming families into the North Atlanta community and seeing how we could minister to them. And our first family arrived in December of 2015, a Syrian Muslim family, on the same week that the governor of Georgia decreed that no Syrian Muslim families would be allowed to enter into Georgia even though the president had made that decree. Well, that all of a sudden put Johnson Ferry in the midst of the media glare and all of a sudden, we had all this media descending on our church when somehow they found out about this, and they were bewildered because after all, North Atlanta, Cobb County, where we are, is an overwhelmingly Republican community. And if you were to interview the people of our church, an overwhelmingly Republican-leaning church, and so the media was totally baffled as to why we were ministering to Syrian Muslim refugees when it didn't really fit their mindset of what would happen in a community like ours. 
And it gave us a chance to share the gospel of Christ and the good news of Christ as God gave a platform totally unexpected by a church simply doing what we felt led to do. So here's the question today. Was it right for a local church to reach out even when the government is decreeing that this is not good? Was it right? And really, the bottom line is, what does Scripture say? What does the Word of God say when it comes to ministry such as this? Because let's face this reality. In a church like ours, people are overwhelmingly influenced by Fox News and talk radio more than the Word of God. And I have a feeling if you're in an evangelical Bible-believing church, those who sit in your pews, they would fit that same category. And so our responsibility as pastors and as spiritual leaders in the church is how can we communicate what the Word of God shares about caring for immigrants and refugees and not what your favorite tribal news outlet tells you is how you're supposed to believe about this particular issue. Because after all, on this week, hey, this is Reformation Sunday. Isn't the Word of God to be our authority and how we believe in God, how we live out our faith in Jesus Christ? So what does the Word of God say? Well, let's begin, and I ask you to turn in your scriptures or your phone or tablet, however you read the Word of God, If you will look at Matthew chapter 2, and let's look at three verses that really reveal to us the most famous refugee family in the history of earth. Verse 13, Matthew 2. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother while it was still night and he left for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Father, As we look into your word here in Matthew 2, as we look into your word and other texts that reveal to us your will and your word concerning immigrants and refugees, I pray that you will speak to us now. Speak to us, Father. We need to hear from you. And Father, more than just hearing from you, may we believe your word by living your word in our everyday life and in our local churches for the glory of God, for the building up of your kingdom. Lord, may it happen. For we pray this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. If ever there's a situation that is so similar to what Syrian refugees are dealing with, it's what happened with the family of Jesus. The wise men had just been there, and I'm always fascinated by Joseph. I feel like he really doesn't get all the good press he deserves. I know Mary gets the big billing, and understandably, she is the most important woman that has ever walked the face of the earth. After all, to give birth to God's son is a pretty big deal. But Joseph really had incredible faith because when Mary told him that outrageous story that she had gotten pregnant, 
he knew they had not had sex together and she said it was the Holy Spirit that did it. I, guys, I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd believe that. I mean, your high school honey comes to you, you're in love with her. She says she's pregnant, but don't worry. I haven't had sex with anyone. The Holy Spirit has done this. Yeah, I don't think many guys here would really believe that. And yet, the angel of the Lord, and God sends his angels as messengers when the word of God is not available, and we see that to this day in highly restrictive Muslim regimes. And so the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, and he believes the word of God through the angel. He believes the word of God about Mary. He believes the word of God time and time again. And then the wise men come, the magi, or if you're from the south, the magi come, and they bring these gifts. They worship the Lord. It has to reassure both Joseph and Mary that what they've been hearing from the angels is really true about this little baby, Jesus. And so another angel appears, a messenger of God, and tells Joseph, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now put yourself in the shoes of Joseph. This is happening to him at night, and he really, he really has got to make another decision of faith. He's got to gather up his family and flee in the middle of the night. If ever there's a picture of what refugees have had to do in Syria in recent years, flee in the darkness of night to have a chance to get out of this war-torn land. And they're to go and really not know where they're going. This is like an Abraham moment. He's to go to Egypt. The border was about 70 miles to the south, but he probably thought maybe I can get to Alexandria because Philo of Alexandria wrote that there were about a million Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt at this time when Jesus was born. So he is fleeing south. He doesn't really know where he's going to wind up, but he is doing this on faith and he doesn't know how long he's going to be there. Have you ever wondered how long Jesus and Joseph and Mary were in Egypt? We really don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us how long. But he stepped out on faith and followed the will of God. This is the most famous refugee family in the history of man. And it's interesting that they remained there until the death of Herod. We don't know exactly how long that was. And this was a fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy of Hosea 11.1. And it's interesting, there are two types of prophecy from the Old Testament prophets. There is the predictive prophecy that we focus on a lot, such as Micah 5, 2, about where the Messiah would be born. But then there is typological prophecy that we see here with Hosea. And we see it here with Matthew. For Matthew is equating Jesus, the Son of God, with Israel, the specially chosen people of God, who fled to Egypt in a time of great crisis, but also were set free from Egypt in God's will and God's timing. And so we see a typological prophecy here comparing the children of Israel to the life of Christ. And in this, we see a fascinating, fascinating story about Jesus as the original refugee. So what does the Bible teach about caring for the immigrants and refugees? I want to urge you to write these passages down. First of all, Genesis 46, 1 through 7, you see why Israel, when it was still just a family, the family of Jacob, fleed in desperation to Egypt because there was food there. And God in his sovereignty had orchestrated those events as you can read about in Genesis 46. But then it's also interesting that after the children of Israel were set free from Egypt, after hundreds of years of bondage, that God reminds them to care for the immigrant. And in Exodus chapter 23, chapter 23 of Exodus in verses 9 and 10, it tells us this. 
you shall not oppress a stranger since you yourselves know the feelings of being a stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, whenever you read about a stranger or an alien in the old covenant, it is a reminder of immigrant and refugee today. And God is saying to the children of Israel, look, you know what it's like to be a stranger, to be an immigrant, to be a refugee in Egypt. You were bound there for hundreds of years. So you as the children of Israel who are to be the people of faith, who are to be the light to the Gentiles, you are to be different. You're to remember them. You're to care for them. And then we go to Leviticus chapter 19 in the next book. And in Leviticus chapter 19 verses 9 through 10, we see interesting insight about the teaching that J.D. referred to a moment ago. Verse 9 of Leviticus 19, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of the field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the falling fruit of the vineyard, but you shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger, that is for the immigrant and for the refugees. You're to care for them. You're not to just hoard it all for yourself. And then we read later in Leviticus 19, verse 34, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you. You shall, listen to this, listen to this. In the old covenant, you shall love him as you love yourself. For you were aliens, or you were immigrants, or you were refugees in the land of Egypt. For I am the Lord your God. We read on in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Listen to the word of God. He executes justice for the orphan, for the widow, and shows love for the alien, that is the immigrant, that is the refugee, by giving him food and clothing. So you shall love the immigrant and the refugee, for you were immigrants and refugees in the lands of Egypt. Now, there's verse after verse in the Old Covenant that guides Israel, which is also a guide to us as the people of faith of how to care for the immigrant and for the refugee. But what about in the New Covenant? You can read in Galatians 5.14 that the fulfillment of the law, according to the Apostle Paul, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And just a few moments ago, we heard J.D. talk through and preach us through and teach us through that wonderful story of Jesus of the Good Samaritan because that lawyer wanting to know who his neighbor was, often thinking that their neighbor was fellow Jews or even more exclusive, their neighbor was fellow Pharisees, said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told that great story that our neighbor is anyone in need. And then you read in Matthew chapter 25 as Jesus is giving an eschatological parable, one of three parables, speaking of the final judgment. And in Matthew 25, verse 35, he says this, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. That is, I was an immigrant. I was a refugee. And you invited me in. Now, folks, this is so, so powerful. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying how you treat the immigrant, how you treat the refugee is how you treat me. That's what he's saying. That is vitally important for us to understand. And then in Hebrews 13, verse 2, we also see in the New Covenant that sometimes we actually entertain angels unaware by how we care for the immigrant and how we care for the refugee. 
So in looking at these biblical passages and urging you to really study those biblical passages later on after this day, how do we live this out? Well, number one, we need to help our people clarify the differences of the role of government and the role of the church. J.D. just talked to us about the fact of having a government official talk with him about how to live this out and how there are two different responsibilities. Well, what is the responsibility of government according to Romans chapter 13? There are three key responsibilities. The government is to provide security for the citizens. That's why there is police. That's why there is military. That's why the government has the authority to wage the sword because the government is to provide security for the citizens. Secondly, the government is to administer justice. Thirdly, the government is to punish evil. You read in scripture, that is the role of government. So with that being the role of government, let's think about how that contrasts with the role of the church. The role of the church is to love our neighbor. Our neighbor is all of our fellow man, but it is especially according to the story of the Good Samaritan, it is anyone who is in need. So the role of the government and the role of the church is different. So what about when the government seems to be in conflict with the church, which is what we faced in North Atlanta when we began to accept Syrian Muslim refugee families into North Atlanta to care for them and to help them to resettle into our culture? And we were asked that question. We were asked that question by some of our church members, even though our church has been overwhelmingly supportive, and we are tremendously thankful for that. But they were honest questions, people dealing with fear, people bombarded by their favorite tribal news outlet, telling them all the dangers of allowing these Syrian Muslims into our land. And yet we at Johnson Ferry were seeing that God had orchestrated this moment to give us an opportunity to share the love and the gospel of Christ with people we would have never had the opportunity to do so. And so the question that seemed to resonate most with our people and others who would ask us about this outside the body of Christ at Johnson Ferry is, look, it is not our decision who is led into the United States. That is the government's responsibility. But it is our decision if we're going to follow Christ and love our neighbor and who could be a better example of our neighbor, a person in need, than these Syrian Muslim refugee families. That seemed to help folks within the body of Christ. It just seemed to begin to make sense that the role of government and the role of the church is different. And above all, we are called to do what Christ is calling on his church to do in sharing the love of Christ. And yes, there can be risk. But doesn't it make sense? Now listen now, are you listening? Don't miss this. Doesn't it make sense if Syrian Muslim refugees come into the United States and say we in the community decide to give them a cold shoulder? We don't want to have anything to do with them. I mean, after all, they could become terrorists. They may be terrorists. But doesn't it make sense to reach out with the love of Christ to these folks, to help them get settled in America, to help their kids enroll in school, to teach them English, to help them know how to buy food at the grocery store, to help them to know how to pay their bills, to help them know how to get a driver's license. Doesn't it make sense that there is a greater chance that they will love America if we reach out with love to them rather than giving them the cold shoulder where they become resentful of America and may even become sympathetic 
to radical Muslim terrorist teaching. It's a no-brainer to me. Yes, there's risk, but we got to do what Christ has called us to do. Secondly, I urge you to do this. You know, we, we've done some goofy things as the Southern Baptist Convention through the years. A lot of goofy things. I realize that. I mean, you know, we, we deal with hokiness and goofiness. It's just a part of our heritage. But the Southern Baptist Convention in 2011 did a wonderful thing in Phoenix and passed a resolution on immigration that if you hadn't read it, you need to read it. It is well stated, biblically grounded. And then in 2016, at St. Louis, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution on caring for refugees. This topic really in the forefront of leading the way from a biblical basis of caring for immigrants and refugees. I urge you to read that. But here's a big question. Does that mean that we as Christians are to have no concern about the borders? No concern about those coming in? Absolutely not. It does not mean that. A major responsibility of government is to provide security for the, uh, for the citizens. And a nation without secure borders is not really a nation, it's open real estate. So yes, the government has that responsibility. And yes, the government has the responsibility of vetting those refugees who are allowed into the nation. And by the way, it is an incredibly exhaustive vetting process. You would be amazed at the process. And it's not like refugees are even applying to come to the United States. That is a decision that is really out of their control where they're going to be assigned. But it is an exhaustive vetting process. And we need to pray for our government officials because they have a huge responsibility for the security of the nation. So obviously we're to be concerned about that. But we need to understand this too. Our system, especially when it comes to immigration, is broke. It is broken. And we need to pray for our government officials to rise above the partisan fray and somehow or another find enough citizens and public servants who love our land to start to bring about a more just and humane immigration system that not only deals with the importance of secure borders, but also cares humanely for those who come here as immigrants and who come here as refugees. Because the system is broken. And as long as it stays broken, you're going to see an incredible amount of injustice. I love what Richard Land, the former ERLC chairman, said that for years when it came to the American border, we had two signs at the border. One said, no trespassing. The other sign said, help wanted. And people in desperate situations, living in poverty, living in fear of violence, often chose to believe the second sign versus the first. And as we as a nation send out that mixed signal, we have added to the difficulties of the broken system and laws and regulations and security of immigration. But also, let's remember this as we think through this. Let's be sure, and I ask you this now, everybody, are you listening? Are you listening? Are you allowing Scripture 
to be your guide when it comes to immigration and refugees? Or are you becoming like the average evangelical Christian in the pew that allows their favorite tribal news outlet to guide how you believe and how you think and how you act on this issue? Are you really willing to let the Word of God guide how you believe and how you think? And ask yourself this, what would Jesus do? But what would, what would he do? Now, I realize that question has become cliche. I understand that. But still, it's really the most important question. What would Jesus do? Jesus understands what it's like to be a refugee. Jesus taught that self-righteous lawyer who wanted to clarify who his neighbor was so he would know who he needed to love and who he didn't need to care about. He nailed it on the Good Samaritan story. But also realize this. Jesus Christ is the ultimate immigrant. He left his home, if you will, in heaven to enter into this sin-filled world. And here's what's interesting. Is when he began his ministry in this sin-filled world, it was the sinners, the known sinners who gravitated to him. And it was the religious leaders who rejected him. Oh, how similar to the world today. And as Jesus was so turned against by the religious leaders and the government authorities that they felt he must be murdered and eliminated from culture because of the bad influence and the great following of the crowd that he had, incredibly, Jesus prayed to the Father in heaven to forgive the people who were murdering him. Because in their lostness, they just didn't know what they were doing. And we see the grace of God that is just, it, 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 it's why we're here. It's why you're here today. It's why you and I are followers of Jesus. This incredible love of God that is the ultimate immigrant. He has left his throne in heaven to come and live among us. And even though we rejected him, because really in the end, we're like those religious leaders and those government authorities. It's our sin that murdered him. And he prays for us on the cross to be forgiven by the Father, and we have been. I know we have to decide to receive that forgiveness. I understand that. It's not a universal salvation. It's something every individual has to decide to accept. But I have a feeling that the overwhelming majority of you that are here today, you have received that grace. And it has transformed your life. And you're already burdened about the immigrant and the refugee because of the ultimate immigrant's love for you. And so what are you going to do? First of all, you want to share this good news. 
and we want to share it with immigrants and refugees that God in his sovereign plan for history in what seems to be a chaotic and out of control world has orchestrated events so that we have the chance to get this gospel to people that we never would have had the opportunity to do so. We want to seize this opportunity. And, and I urge you to, as you think about your local church, let me just share a few things that I feel like God has done in our church that prepared us for this moment where we found ourselves in conflict with the local government or the state government but, and even the mindset of the national federal government. But why in our local church people have responded overwhelmingly positive? It's because the Great Commission was before them and many, literally thousands from our fellowship have gone on short-term mission trips around the world. And what happens is people begin to see outside their comfort zone and what is familiar and their provincial mindset that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of these people. And so when the opportunity came for us to welcome in Syrian Muslims and some Iranian Christian families. We now have 11 families we've been caring for in our community. The congregation had already been ministering like this around the world. And I know, look, I, I know y'all got your strong feelings about short-term mission trips, and we understand all the criticism. We know they can be like a glorified, feel-good, do-good vacation. We understand that, but Short-term mission trips is how people get their toe in the water of seeing the bigger world that God wants us to reach for Christ. And the over 100 or so folks that have been sent out full-time in missions from Johnson or missions or ministry from Johnson Ferry, I don't know of a one who didn't begin to feel this calling on a short by going on a short-term mission trip that allowed them to see the great world that Christ calls on us to minister to. And then when you begin to minister to folks like Syrian Muslim refugees, we have nine of those families. We have two Iranian Christian families have suffered greatly for their faith before they came to the United States. It, it, it's, it's certainly an incredible opportunity for your local congregation, but it is not easy. Because think about all of our soldiers who fought in Afghanistan, who fought in Iraq, and some of the psychological and emotional problems that they have had, getting over the experiences they had on the front lines of that. Well, these Syrian Muslim refugees and these Iranian Christian refugees, they are dealing with the same kind of psychological and emotional damage that those soldiers of America have that have returned from seeing the ugliness of war, when they've seen sisters and children and relatives literally blown away in front of their eyes. It's messy, folks. They don't immediately respond with a Pollyanna outlook about how it's so great to be in the dreamland of America. They've got a lot of baggage. It's not easy. And if you begin to minister in these situations, you're going to have to understand that. Here's something I really ask you to pray about today, Johnson Ferry. This is a burden to us. We have presented the gospel many times to every one of those Syrian Muslim families. And there's no doubt they have been greatly appreciative of the ministry of John Safari. But we have not had one person to come to Christ since the first family came in in December of 2015. Now you think about that. Does that mean we're going to say, well, we did our part? 
move on. No, we continue to minister to them unconditionally to this very day. But it would be wonderful if I could come today and tell you of the five, six, seven of these folks that have trusted Christ, not one. It's not easy. We'd love to see that. But here's what I ask you to do today. Will you do this? Would you just pray for those nine families to have hearts softened to where some of them come to Christ? Would you just today, maybe before you put your head on the pillow tonight, just pray that somehow or another, as we continue to share the love of Christ with these folks, the hearts will soften and some of them will come to Christ. So realize as you begin to do this, it's not going to be easy, but man, is it a joy. And what a joy to do what we know Jesus and the Word of God is teaching us to do. I want to show you a picture on the screen of one of our young adults, a guy named William Stocks. He was featured in the New York Times article about what was happening here. And this is a guy 24 years old. He works with a huge commercial construction firm, the firm that built the Atlanta Braves Stadium and all. He's one of their project managers, really outstanding young man. But this picture is him teaching English to one of our Syrian Muslim families. He's never taught anything in his life, just going over there at night, trying to begin to communicate with them, spending hours with them. And he's just one of hundreds of volunteers that does ministry like that. I don't know about you, but I'll tell you this as a pastor, that gives me tremendous joy to see those in the body of Christ catch the vision of what Christ has called us to be and do in reaching out to immigrants and refugees, sharing with them the love of Christ in the flesh in hopes that they can come to know the person of Christ through the gospel of Christ. It greatly enriches your fellowship. And who knows, maybe because of this love and maybe because of your prayers today, some of these Syrian Muslims will come to know Jesus. And maybe some of them will one day return and share the love of Christ with their families and friends or simply other refugees and immigrants that settle here. That is our hope. That is our prayer. Will you join me in praying for that now? Father God, as I, I think about the comment of this young man in our church, William Stocks, that came to me after that feature in the New York Times, and he said, Pastor, isn't this amazing that this is even a news story when we're just doing what Jesus tells us to do? But it is. 
Oh, Father, it is because so few in the body of Christ are seizing the opportunity that you have given the church in America to minister to immigrants and refugees that are showing up on our doorsteps. People we couldn't have gotten to with the love of Christ before. Father, I pray for those nine Syrian Muslim families where not one person has come to Christ in almost two years now. I pray that the hard hearts, the blindness of Islam will be removed to where they will see and long for that salvation and eternal life and abundant life that you give in Jesus. Lord, may it happen. Lord, I pray for every person that is here today. The easiest thing to do as an American Christian is to come to a conference like this and just feel better about yourself. Oh, Lord, may we repent of that. May we leave this time today with a conviction to reach out to do what you're calling us to do as followers of Jesus. To find a way to begin relationships with immigrants and refugees in our communities, and they are here. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may you convict us. Please convict us today. Help us to reach out with the love of Christ in hopes that a heart one day will be open and receptive to receiving the gospel of Christ. And Father, we pray for the American church so riddled with fear versus faith, so filling their brains and their minds with their favorite tribal news outlet versus the word of God. Oh, Father, may this be a time of great repentance in the American church. Lord, may people in the pews come alive with the desire to trust you and have faith in you and follow your word. Oh, Lord, may the world be amazed. May the world be floored and seeing Bible-believing Christians reaching out with love for immigrants and refugees in a way that astounds them, that surprises them, and hopefully in a way that makes them open to the good news of Jesus. Our Father, we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.